This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today we bring you part two of my conversation with John Schaffner, Emmy Award-winning production designer and art director. John has designed some of television's most iconic sets, including Friends, Two and a Half Men, and The Big Bang Theory. And the arts are about capturing and storing and helping us see the world. Otherwise, we'd be just depressed all the time (laughs) if we didn't have the arts around us. John is a proud alum of the University of Montana and a sponsor of our annual Odyssey of the Stars gala event. The sitcom work really had to be done at the, at the studio. So right. it's not uncommon for multi-camera designers to do multiple shows. Single-camera designers do one show at a time. It's an overlapping work. It's much more like in the theater. If you're a stage designer, you're working on a show in Atlanta and a show here and a show there. So my multi-camera sitcom work kind of fell along that same line. And I had worked early in my career for an incredible production designer, Edward Stevenson, and I, as an assistant, but he sort of made me his main set decorator. So I always remind people, I was the set decorator on the pilot to the Golden Girls. So <laughs> the sofa was my fault. Okay. Ed agreed to it, right. but I picked out that orange fabric and everything. You know, at some point I had, I had seven series running simultaneously, and I had an office at Warner Brothers, an office at Fox, an office at CBS Radford, and, you know, an office at Paramount. You do get better with practice. Because at first I was very anxious about when I took on a second show after yeah. Friends became a hit. And then pretty soon the phone rings. You know, now, as they say, nothing succeeds like success. Absolutely. You know, when, yeah. when you have a success in Hollywood, oh, everybody wants you. So we were, I mean, I cannot believe how fortunate and, you know, lucky we were. I mean, we worked hard and kept our noses clean, but at the same time, it worked out. Yeah. And, and, that notion about success compounding on itself, when you were in that zone of your career, how did you make choices around what you would say yes to and what you would maybe pass on? You never say no. I never say no. <laughs> you okay. just say yes. Because, yep. you, you know, I said I, I gave up a couple, two or three series that I had designed because I said, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to go forward with this one. It's I love it. It's great. But uh-huh. it's just, it's way over at Sony. And I just, that's the farthest Can't studio to get to. And uh, unless I really would have a great number two person with me. But uh, it's just uh, been a wonderful ride. And and along the the ride has been the development of relationships and friendships of people in the business, Mm -hmm. which led me into working with the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences and serving on the board there representing production designers and, and set decorators. You know, we used to be called art directors. But okay. over time, the production, the main title of the designer became production designer, and art director now became the title of the number two person. Mm. And where I used to be an art director and an assistant art director, everybody went up a notch. And as as projects grew over the years, it just takes more people to do them. The expectation of watching I Love Lucy and that scenery was a lot less than the expectation that the audience... we. The business has taught the audience to expect more and more and more, which means more people, more money, yes. which means, which is good. There's more jobs, really. It's, it's a huge business. I mean, the transition is so radical between 1980 and today 
from when there were three networks and then four. But then the advent of first-run syndication was the first big bump and the expansion when more TV stations needed to buy more product because they weren't affiliates to a major network. So they needed product. And the next step was cable. The expansion of cable was this huge development. And now we have the expansion into the streaming universe, which is another huge expansion. I mean, there's so much content right now uh, that I think the audience sometimes is bewildered about what to watch. You know, years ago, uh, one of the previous chairman of the Television Academy had said to me, well, entertainment television is always going to be paid for by commercials. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I don't know. If people want to watch what they want to watch, when they want to watch it, where they want to watch it, on whatever device they want to watch it on. And that's where we're headed. And that's going to have to be paid for through a lot of different streams, you know. And the first one was cable, like you know, premium HBO. Yep. You had that was like buying a ticket to the theater. So now it became now you buy a bunch of tickets and you have your Hulu and you have your Peacock and you have your oh it's yeah Amazon. and that, that fragmentation and people who do the math realize oh I'm actually spending a lot more every month than I thought I was with uh-huh. cable. Talk about how those technological changes have maybe changed the craft of, of set design. It seems like the studio audience multicam style is, is maybe less prominent these oh, days than, it's than once a, was. It's having a hard time. Yeah. And I don't think it's because it, a, a, a successful multi-camera comedy series is a real moneymaker. Okay. The, you know, Warner Brothers has probably made more money on Friends than just about any other product except perhaps, you know, Hogwarts, you know, the whole Sure. That. Explain why it's a moneymaker. Because they can run it over and over and over and over and, you know, charge for the, the use of it whatever outlet they have. You know, they, they pulled it back away from Netflix when they got HBO Plus, and, uh, which is the Warner stream. Mm-hmm. I, but I, they're still doing it on some of the Warner-owned things, but... They, they took it back so that they could draw more audiences into paying those monthly fees right. to HBO or Warner Brothers. And, uh, but for a long time there, it's like those shows, they re- the successful ones just make money. Is there something about a multicam show that makes it more enduring than a single cam? Well, there's a lot of theories, but I think it's that they're very comfortable as an audience, you know, sometimes there's nothing, you just are so overwhelmed, you come home and you want to be distracted and you want something familiar and you turn on, you know, an episode of Friends or, you know, Seinfeld or any of the others that have managed to really survive well and you just kind of roll into it and you might even have seen it before, yeah. but you kind of enjoy seeing it again because you say the lines along with them and you know the characters and you want to see what they're going to do next. And there's humor. I mean, I think our, our industry right now, we're so lacking in good comedy and humor. Mm. I, I think our nation needs more oh my humor. Gosh, we yeah. need to laugh more yeah. because it's it's the only thing that's going to keep us going through so many of the, you know, challenges we are faced in our environment, sure. you know, politically, socially, physically. I just, you know, I just wish there was more. I, I'm two and a half men. That's another super hit in terms of the reruns. Yeah. But sometimes we would get those scripts and we would read them at the production meeting table. We would all read them and then we would all come to this meeting where we'd all see each other like, 
Oh, I'd say to the costume designer, are they really going to try to do that? Yeah, that show, just the whole premise was pretty close to oh, the Oh, it went way around the, the, the end on, <laughs> on things. You know, that started out with Chuck calling me and this is what we're going to do the show. It's going to be Charlie Sheen and this is what it's about. And I'm like, okay. And I read the script and I, I went up and down the highway in Malibu and took pictures of houses. And I came back to Chuck and I said, you know, it, it, the, the obvious choice would be black leather sofas, chrome furniture, and lots of glass and scary windows and modern house for this horrible, mean, awful, you know, crazy, womanizing, drug-addicted alcoholic. Right, <laughs> so, essentially. But, but, but the reason the show was successful, especially at the beginning, Charlie Sheen is remarkably charming as a human. Mm. No, as an actor, he, he carried that same charm. Yeah, and I said, I think we need to give him something really classic and nice and homey to live in. So we'll go with colonial, California Spanish inspired architecture that's been there since the '30s, and we'll go off some of those old things, you know, texture on the walls and fireplace, comfortable doors. Make him make you know he he really isn't as awful as he is, sure. and that's what why the show was successful. And, and then, of course, Charlie had his own problems. <laughs> yeah, I mean, does that enter your world as a as a production designer at all? Just that complexity of dealing with a, a lead actor in crisis. Well, lead actors in crisis means you have to be flexible if there's an episode or something, and you have to shut down suddenly mm. uh, for a week or two to regroup and see what we're doing, and then throw out that script and start over with something else. Right. Patience, you know, it's like, oh gosh. And, you know, as much as we like to grumble about, well, they can't make up their minds. I know that the writers and the producers and the network and the studio peeps are all in the same level of panic, if not more so. Yeah. And, you know, in Charlie's case, it was, God bless him, a sweet guy, but, you know, you shower him with money and not enough to do because, you know, when we were really rolling, uh, he probably worked 25 hours a week. You make a million bucks a week, work 25 hours. What do you do with the rest of your time? If you don't have the resources within yourself to pursue philanthropy or hobby or writing or something right. Any else. structure to put around that A structure that life, you just get – I've seen people get lost in that, you know. I mean, the, the cast of Friends really, really, truly kept it together. You know, Matthew Perry, he got lost – Primarily because he was had a lot of uh, back pain issues and right. he got stuck in the pain pills and that led to alcohol. Dick Clark always gave great advice. He would, you know, I watched him several times. If there was a newcomer on a show, he'd say, look, he'd pull him aside. I just want you to know that you should be, you know, save your money because you don't know when your next hit's going to be. Mm. He, he was he was a real father sure. to a lot of these figures, you know, although some of them just got away from him, like Michael Jackson. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> I would assume that was kind of some of the dynamic on Star Search, too. You had up-and-comers. You could probably see, oh, yeah, this person has it. They're going to go someplace. But, yeah, was, was the staff there similarly inclined to say, hey, yeah, I mean, play, when, play if someone careful. managed to make it to the the winning point, you know, it's okay. Get yourself a good financial advisor here. You know, hundred thousand dollars doesn't go that far. Sounds good, sure. But even in the eighties, it wasn't that much money. It, it was awful, awful fun though to watch the people who did win give back to their families more often than not. Yeah. You know, the first thing they wanted to do was buy a new car for their mom. Mm, you know, that, that was a very consistent story throughout 
that. Yeah. I love talking about TV. I mean, it's pretty fun. You know, and I've been we've been talking about a lot of the, some of the creative work, yeah. but I think the business of the inner world is is pretty fascinating right now. Yeah. You know, I wanted to follow up on that. Yeah. You know, working as uh, chairman of the as a volunteer, I you know, as I said, I I had started out working with the Television Academy as a representative and as a it's structured through peer groups, which are groups of disciplines. So it was the designers' peer group for production designers and set decorators. And uh, there's the costume and costume supervisors' peer group and the director's peer mm-hmm. group, et cetera. And uh, then I became second vice chair and then first vice chair. And I said, well, you know, I've been around here. I might as well run for chair because learning the ins and outs of any institution sure. sometimes is a challenge. And taking a lead on that was interesting because we were really at a point where the networks were starting to get really anxious about the growth of the HBOs and them winning all the Emmys for yes. the long form single camera work and uh, the and the networks were just like why are we paying for this show when there's none of our shows getting nominated sure well, yep. I look back then and say well you know a lot of their shows were nominated now not so much mm-hmm. so hanging over my head the entire four years I was chairman was the next license deal how much can we get you know out of the the, the networks because they primarily pay the four networks pay Okay, and explain that. What's the next license deal? Like, so does the money flow? So there, there's different arrangements. The only one that's really unique is the, for the most part, is the Academy Awards, the Motion Picture Academy. Okay. They own their show. They produce their show, and the network pays them a whole lot of money to air, and they make money doing that. Uh, sometimes they spend too much. Sometimes they spend less. Whereas the Emmy Awards and most of the other shows. They sell the rights to doing the show to the network for a license fee. And then the network pays for the production costs. Okay. Or the Motion Picture Academy pays for the production costs of the Academy Awards. Got it. So that license fee is the money that the Television Academy pays for its programs and staff and running the contest. Mm -hmm. So... You know, we started out. Uh, you know, you know, early days. It was in the two million, three million, four million. You know, a, a thing, and you know, trying to work that up to a substantial amount of money. We finally made a great deal. My final year, with the tremendous help of an incredible attorney, Ken Ziffrin, um, and we made an incredible license deal, and it made the front practically the front page of the calendar section of the L.A. Times. John Schaffner did it. They saw that Emmys are going to stay alive for eight more years at a substantial increase in in license fee. Sure, that's one of the things I was you know greatly proud of accomplishing. Yeah. I think though one of the things as chairman of the Television Academy, I'm really proud of was establishing a new award we call the Television Academy Honors. Whereas I'd like to say we celebrate television with a conscience. Okay. So programming that isn't necessarily going to win an Emmy because Emmy shows tend to be a little splashier, a little more glamorous, mm-hmm. whatever, a little more, you know, topical. Yeah, to they're some optimized level. for a different function. For, for popularity. Sure. So there's a lot of programs that people work very hard on to create that really are about the challenges we face, but this is across the board. You can find a program in comedy that deals with great topics. You know, it doesn't all have to be documentaries. It can be, you know, fiction work as well. Mm-hmm. So we've kept that alive now. Uh, this is, I think, our 15th uh, year with doing the Television Academy Honors coming up. We'll be back to my conversation with John Schaffner after this short break. 
A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey folks, on August 11th, A New Angle and The Right Question are teaming up for our first live event at the Wilma Theater. Justin and I will be helping the legendary David James Duncan launch his new novel, Sunhouse, a book 16 years in the making. Lauren and I will chat with David. David will read, and renowned singer-songwriter Jeffrey Foucault will illustrate Sunhouse in music. Montana Public Radio presents this evening of story, song, and conversation, August 11th at the Wilmot Theater in Missoula. Get your tickets now at logjampresents.com. I'm Larry Summers, Harvard President Emeritus and former Treasury Secretary. You're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to New Angle. I'm speaking with Emmy Award-winning set designer John Schaffner, about his work on some of television's most iconic shows. So back to that question about how streaming has changed the business of production and the types of shows that, that get greenlit and, and, and carry on. It, it seems like the the sitcom from the 80s and 90s is kind of a... It's having a harder time, as you said. Oh, so. yeah. There used, to be, there used to be a period when there'd be like 40 pilots for sitcoms. Yeah. Uh, you know, one year there, I remember there were like 30 and I designed 11 of them. Mm-hmm. And then it slowly has been petering down. I think there were four pilots this year for multi-camera comedies. NBC basically made a decision to walk away from them. Mm-hmm. To some extent, the the network, if they could get a good procedural that's real regular, they they, they kind of like that. It's more expensive to produce. The license fees are higher. There's not as much back-end money coming through. But they're they're the old reliables, and people tune in. Things and, like Law and Order, yeah. or CSI, yeah, and they roll forever. on. You know, you start watching at eight o'clock, and then you watch the next one, <laughs> then you watch the next one. You know, you don't. A comedy allows you after a half an hour to move on to something sure. else, and and a half an hour they want to catch you for the whole hour. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the reasons. I I think it's like I said, I think it's short sighted in many respect. But you do have to try a lot uh, of comedies to find one. That works, you know. So yeah. you got you have a lot of investment up front in terms of development, but then when you get a hit, then you pay for all everything else that your network sure, is, sure. or your studio is is doing. But you know, the, the like I said, the comedy business shifted into you know Nickelodeon produces a lot of them now. Okay, uh, you know the Disney Channel for a while really developed a lot with Miley Cyrus and the rest of you know the Disney kids. Oh yeah, they brought up and they spent a lot of money on on their shows and of course they rerun those to pieces. Mm-hmm. So it shifted in that direction somewhat in terms of the comedy business. I think the 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 challenge now is is that uh, we're seeing a lot of shakedown in the business, right? Because of the humongous growth in the last five years, and then the pandemic made everything really weird. Yes. Whereas you know Netflix has has there's a lot of cash flow, but they spend a lot of money, and they've they've been stealing people like Ryan Murphy at outrageous fees. You know, three hundred million dollars to develop product. And Shonda Rhimes, hundreds of millions of dollars. 
And the networks just can't, they're not in that business. But so the networks are choosing to more and more often try to just own their own production companies, own their own product, and not buy from other places, which is kind of clamped down on some of the creative in Hollywood. One network's only going to buy from their studio. Like Disney, ABC only is going to produce shows that Disney owns for ABC. So ABC and Disney isn't going to buy a show from Warner Brothers anymore. Mm -hmm. And in the times gone by the network would buy a show from an independent producer and put it on the air. Then they'd be to buy it from a studio, and now they have to buy it from themselves. And it reduces their the number of options that they have ultimately because they can only afford to have so many development deals in the process. Right. You know, now you got Amazon throwing money at it. Yeah, or an Amazon or an Apple. Netflix just, and Apple. And Apple these, has huge amounts yeah, of money. Yeah, I mean, they can sell these iPhones cash machines adjacent to the content business. And the content business is almost like a vanity product for an Apple. They want to go after the awards. So yeah, it's got to be hard for the, the ad-driven model to compete with that. Yeah, it's you know something to consider is that television and all of these devices uh, create this void of we need something to put on them. The real business is the selling of the phones and the TVs. And that's what it was in the 40s for for television. Oh, we've got this cool thing. We need people to buy them so RCA and Philco can make money. Sure. So what are we going to do with it? So then there's this emptiness. So first thing television did was put on wrestling and boxing because that was very controlled sports and a limited amount of square footage, shall we say, Mm, with really bright lights because those cameras needed a lot of light to take a picture. And that's what TV started with. And then, of course, they're looking for more content, so they went to vaudeville. And that's why the you know early television, people were complaining you know, when, when reality TV moved in and started taking over a lot of time slots. I said, well, folks, that was the beginning of television. At one point, there was, there was two TV stations in Los Angeles, and I found these magazines from the early television days that were supporting, you know, like the like here's who's doing what in TV. This is like pre-variety, pre-H, you know, Hollywood Reporter, and one station only ran one show a night, and it was called Queen for a Day. Now nobody knows what Queen for a Day is, but mm-hmm. it was a show where three women would come into the studio and tell about their sad lives, about their husband who had lost his job, right? And the, they would win a new dishwasher or a washing machine. And that would be, and they'd be queen for a day. It was a reality show of the most basic form. Essentially, yeah. Speaking of reality shows, you we mentioned a moment ago the sort of decline of the studio sitcom. But at the same time, the rise of reality shows during that period, from a set design standpoint, some of those shows had incredibly complex sets. They're and, very yeah, a lot of work. Uh, we we did design Big Brother for a few years. Okay, okay, and uh, it it was a it, it just didn't always fit into our schedule. Sure. So one of our assistants, I turned we turned it over to him, and then he kind of left it and turned it over to one of our other assistants, mm. and that involves this huge amount of collaboration with, you know, because it's it's owned by CBS, it's made for CBS, it's. CBS executives sure. and everybody wants to have their say and every year they sort of have to pick a new dance party theme you know it's like picking the theme to the prom 
And so that show is very intensive design-wise. A very close friend, another assistant of mine, she went on and mm-hmm. did uh, uh, Survivor. That was, a, that was a pretty big design I'm project. Sure. But the yeah, reality was uh, fast to produce in some ways. Uh, audiences, it was novel, you know. It's a soap opera if you're on Big Brother or any of those types. Yep. They're, they're soap operas, really. And so they feel, they feel a need, I think. You know, in in the programming, there's just so much programming now. Oh yeah, so much to watch. I, people tell me, th- "Oh, have you seen such and such?" And I go, "I got to remember. I got to watch that." And I get home and like, "Oh damn, I didn't write down what they said for me to watch." Right, right. So, John, in our remaining moments, I feel like we have to talk about your connection to the University of Montana, your dedication not only to the College of the Arts and Media but the institution in general. You're the recipient of an honorary doctorate this year. I'm very excited. It's a tremendous honor. Talk about that. Why is this place so special to you? Why do you remain a part of this community? Well, for, you know, first and foremost, this is where I grew up. And uh, my connections with the school here really began. One of my family's closest and dearest friends was Dr. Charles Bolin, who was the dean of the College of Fine Arts, as it was known in right. the sixties, and well, actually, up until relatively recently. And my parents' involvement with you know going, we had symphony tickets all the time that and go to the plays. But I think what I appreciated, even after I had gone away for that one year to school and came back, I found an enormous amount of freedom of expression at the school here. I didn't get a lot of no's. If you were willing to you know show up and do the work, they're like, okay, show us what you can do. And that that allowed a lot of I don't know, a, a, a sense of space. Uh-huh. And I think that's what Montana does for you. It gives you a sense of creative space. And, you know, I, I when I meet with kids and they say, oh, I want to go to NYU, I just shake my head and say, why do you want to go to NYU? It's, it's Yes, they have great faculty. You're going to be submerged in this enormous New York City. You, you, you're just going to be one more little pin in a giant, you know, haystack. Yeah. Where in Montana, you know, even a pin here is you can find and, you know, because the haystack, well, haystacks are big, but the University of Montana is, is I think, is just the right size for a, an institution like this. The faculty and students can develop a relationship. Mm-hmm. University of Montana, my God, I had the most amazing faculty growing up here that I had such deep affection for that we remain friends forever. And uh, uh, I think that's part of it. Um you know, I just see that Montana is such a big place, you know, and there's so few people. <laughs> it's amazing what uh, the university system here does for the culture of our space and the culture of Missoula. And it just goes on from there. And it just feels like, you know, we, Joe and I give back a great deal to Carnegie Mellon University as well. Of course, it's a different kind of an institution. It's mm-hmm. a private school. It's very much a conservatory of study for its programs. I think the University of Montana allows you to earn a, have be training. It can be semi-conservatory-like if you choose to make it that way. Okay. But any degree that you get in the College of Arts and Media, I think, offers you opportunities in many other fields in ways that you won't know until you get there. Yeah, it's very weird because, uh, you know, hospitality, just general being, you know, self-aware, aware of, of of the environment, physical space, people, storytelling. I mean, storytelling is critical, and the arts are about capturing and storing and 
helping us see the world. Otherwise, we'd be just depressed all the time <laughs> if we didn't have the arts around us. And and I, I just think that the University of Montana is is such an incredibly unique institution. It's Missoula is, is, is great. And I love the University of Montana. And I've always maintained a relationship with the school. The former president, Dennison, I got to know fairly well over mm-hmm. the years. And I'm just learning to get to know Seth Bodner more and and look forward to more years here at the university. Well, it was great learning about you, your work, and you sharing some of your incredible stories. I'm grateful for the time, John, and grateful for all you do for this community. Thank you. Well, I just love talking, so thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott, social media by AJ Williams, and Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.